Welcome to the Business, Wealth and Mindset Podcast. Your space for real motivational interviews and cutting-edge business content to inspire your positive mental attitude. And now, your host, Alex Sopala. Thank you very much, Gerard, for uh, you know agreeing to come on there and speak to us on this uh, business, wealth, and mindset podcast. You know, I've uh, obviously you know follow quite a lot of your your journey through uh, the the mentorship and the mastermind with Rob as well and and your sessions. So, but uh, yeah, I thought it would be good to uh, bring you on to give um, you know a bit of your uh, golden nuggets and your experience to our listeners as well. So. They get to to follow your journey. So, I thought um, instead of sort of uh, focusing much, obviously we'll go through the speech and everything else. But I think there's a a lot more that you know you you can share. So I, I thought uh, it will be a good idea to sort of uh, start from your journey from the beginnings. You know, growing up as a child and how you got into the family business to sort of build a chronological order of things until until we get to here. I think that uh, sort of sets the scene quite well for our listeners to actually get to know the real you rather than just that, you know, small bit about about the speech. So if we kick it off uh, on there, so just um, take us through your, your journey as a child, grow, growing up, the family, the siblings, and how you got into the business to sort of start setting the scene that way. That's all right, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. So I was born in Richmond, Surrey. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we lived above a dentist there. And Richmond was not a uh, affluent town, city like it is today. Mm-hmm. Very few places were actually outside of London. Mm-hmm. So that was where my father had opened up his first shop. So we had the one shop in Richmond and we lived round the corner above the dentist. And my mother worked in the shop with my father. In fact, she worked in that shop when she was pregnant with me. So (laughs) you would say that it's in my blood and I was born into it. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, he became quite successful, um, although... He went up to about six shops. Now, today, if you had six shops, you'd probably be quite wealthy. Yeah. But um, it wasn't, you know, you weren't really wealthy then. You were just sort of, you just uh, could get by. Um, but we, nevertheless, we moved to a house in Hendon, uh, northwest London, uh, where he carried on expanding the business. I went to school. Obviously, to pass my 11 plus, I went to a grammar school. Uh, but the change from a very small kindergarten uh, prep school to a big state-run school with 33 people in the class didn't really agree with me. Uh, and uh, I, in fact, came last out of the 33 <laughs> in the class. And uh, the headmaster called my parents in and said that unless he improves, we'll have to expel him. I don't know if they would do that today, but (laughs) they would say you'd have some learning difficulty or come to some arrangement. But 
But no, they gave me quite a telling off. And uh, But I wasn't really participating in school at all. I wasn't taking anything on board. Mm. It just I don't know whether I did have any sort of uh, issues, but uh, I then left there and went to some school uh, where you, it was like a catch-up school. It was called a crammer where they crammed a lot of education into short uh, space of time. But that didn't work either, and I failed my... GCSE and went to work for my father um, in Oxford Street. By then, he'd had about 30 shops, uh, although he was in partnership with his brother, his father, or, yeah, and one other brother. Uh, so it was quite a, it was a family business. Um, so, you know, I wasn't heir apparent or anything like that. There were a lot of other people, uh, and they were quite young as well. But nevertheless, I worked in the shop in Oxford Street, which I really enjoyed. Um, mm. And then basically, as I got older, worked in all different parts of the business as it expanded. Um, and it expanded to about 130 shops. Uh, but at that point, my father became very ill. He had a brain tumour. Mm. And he became not the person that he was. He totally changed. And the business started going backwards, losing money. He was making the wrong decisions. And there was a real crisis in the company. Mm. And that's when I felt at the age of 34 that I should take over and change the direction and the way that the business was going because the morale in the company with the managers was terrible. Yeah. And uh, it was very unfortunate because he was a very, very – talented and caring person before the uh, before he became ill but this is what happens in life you know mm. yeah okay so at that, that, at that point uh, obviously um you know that was quite a lot for you to take on but you you had already built up quite a bit of experience in the business and anyway, so you knew a lot of uh, what what was going on yeah so um how 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 did you find it of being at, at the top of the business and where did you take the company from there? Yeah, I mean it was very important that I had been in all different parts of the business, not always very successfully, but mm. nevertheless, um, I'd worked in a lot of um, in you know behind the shop and the counter and in the display department in the factory. Mm. <clears throat> In every aspect, in buying, um, I made a lot of mistakes, a hell of a lot of mistakes on the way. But I did have, I knew everyone in the company and they had a certain amount of respect for me because I'd been in the business, you know, I hadn't just come in. Um, but I managed to persuade my father to step down. Yeah. And then persuade the other directors, his family, which was actually more difficult. Mm. I should take over. They were against it, but uh, yeah, um, I managed to um, take over as managing director. And one of the reasons why we were successful in the early days is we had a buyer called Terry Jordan mm. who used to buy very low-priced product. He was very much aware of the importance of offering value for money uh, and not being too expensive looking. But my father had fallen out with him when he became ill and fired him. And this guy, Terry, 
opened up 26 shops doing what we used to do, mm. offering low-price jewellery, and he was doing exceptionally well. So I felt I needed to bring him back. Yeah. That was the key. I wasn't a buyer. You know, I didn't have experience in buying. Well, I did a bit, but I wasn't in his league as a great buyer. He was a brilliant buyer and had respect from all the suppliers. Mm. So I... Cut a long story short, I managed to buy his business for four million pounds, uh, mm. which basically, well, because our share price had fallen so dramatically and we were in no position to pay four million pounds, I gave him mm. shares in the Ratner's business and he became the biggest shareholder. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, that made me, and I, and I had tremendous opposition from this acquisition from my father. Uh, who and our stockbrokers who tried to, everything they could to do to stop it. But I managed to get it through, and that was the change of our fortunes. And we went back to how we were, offering the public value for money. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Since Terry Jordan had left, Ratners had become more expensive and sales had dropped. Mm. So it was a simple turning the clock back. Yeah, formula which worked extremely well. Yeah, uh, along with then I made I started marketing. Uh, this is one expertise. I might not have expertise in buying, but I have. Marketing is quite simple. You put up posters and reduce prices and yeah. uh, make aggressive claims, which is I, I did that. And along with the lower prices, we became very very successful. In fact, yeah, uh, and that enabled us uh, to acquire our competitors. Who were like the uh, the old Ratners? They were too expensive. We acquired H. Samuel. Mm. Uh, it was a great uh, coup because the business was three times our size. By then, we'd had 150 shops, but H. Samuel had 450, and their shops were absolutely uh, enormous and in marvelous locations, and they had a fantastic reputation. So that put me in the big time. Yeah. Uh, position of H. Samuel. Hmm. Wow. And then that, that took you global as well, yeah, just beyond the UK and Europe. <clears throat> yeah, I, I uh, spoke to uh, my investors and our shares price had gone zooming up for hmm. two years. In fact, one year they were the highest performing share on the stock market. Yeah. We've gone from 34p to £4.20. Uh, but they started going down and uh, – the broker said, well, Gerald, you can't go any further in the UK market. You've already got 50% of the jewellery market. You've acquired H, um, Ernest Jones now, H. Samuel, Watch Swiss mm. Wales, Leslie Davis. Nothing, you're, you're not going to grow at the same pace as you've done for the last three years. Mm. So unless you diversify mm. or take your business abroad, start expanding abroad, we can't see the growth because that's what the stock market do. They look ahead and see where, where you're going to grow, mm. which is not really the right way of running a business in hindsight. But anyway, they, they run a business to suit their shareholders, nobody else. I learned, that, you know, I learned that the advice that I was given was to suit them rather than to suit me. Yeah. <laughs> I was young and uh, about 40 and uh, – yeah decided that the place to go was America. Yeah. 
even though it was the graveyard of all retailers, British mm. retailers, from Marks and Spencers downwards. Mm. But instead of uh, transporting our formula of low-priced jewellery uh, across the Atlantic, uh, which would be presumptuous and arrogant, we uh, teamed up with a very successful business that had 125 shops and basically mm. rolled that business out in exactly the formula they had. And it was very different from our UK business. It was, uh, it was all based on credit. Uh, if you went into a uh, shop in America, you would want to examine the diamond ring with a gem scope. I mean, yeah. that, that wouldn't work in the UK at all. People know this and that. It was, we had to respect the fact that it was a very different market. But because we had such good partners, uh, even though we are, we paid a huge price, we paid £125 million for them, for 125 shops, mm. uh, it was worth it because we then expanded that business to 1,000 shops. Yeah. And we're very successful in America. And, in fact, we were one of the very few uh, retailers to succeed uh, across the Atlantic. Uh, so by now we had about two and a half thousand shops. We'd wow. expand the the, U, the UK and the US, and we were making profits uh, of 125 million, forecast to go to 200 million. Now you think that's back in '91? Wow. Uh, that's a billion profit. There isn't a retailer today that's making that sort of it's profit. Making, we're really uh, on a crest of a wave. Hmm. That, that that's massive. That's a global empire there. But just to pick up on a, on a few points there in terms of uh, um, making decisions and uh, um, some some instinctual decisions that that you would make because you mentioned there when uh, you were looking to go to America, you know, some of the brokers, even yourself, were not so as well. In the same way that uh, here, when you are looking to 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 take over and do some of the takeover, like bring. Uh, uh, your previous partner back in, uh, that was instinctual on your part to bring Ratners back to base, which is what you're offering. But some of your uh, people around you are not so keen, but it brought you success as well. So wh where do you think the balance lies in terms of when you're making business decisions to make them based on your instinct and what do you think is right, despite what everyone around you is saying or listening to people? and then seeing what happens, because both sides could potentially bring success as well. So where would you put the balance? Well, the key turning point was that Terry Jordan acquisition, because mm. it put it back on, on the successful route. It wasn't a big acquisition. The H. Samuel was the big. But what it did was it changed uh, the Ratner's business from going backwards to going forwards again. Forwards. Yeah. Uh, in the right direction. Now, um, yes, you're right. The, the, the opposition was, um, without my knowledge, even though I'd taken over as managing director, my father agreed, um, the stockbrokers, our stockbrokers, which were then called Greaves and Grant, hmm. went to see my father and said, Gerald's making a big mistake for this acquisition. He's giving away all the shares. Hmm. We've got an alternative offer for you from a, a Scottish company that can buy you out which would actually have meant the end of ratners which was a ridiculous yeah. thing mm -hmm. and anyway uh, luckily somebody informed me that my father had these people in his office mm. i phoned my uh, bank uh, who were dealing with the terry's deal really? and i'll never forget this he was in um, 
the city and we were in Oxford Circus mm. and he was so uh, shocked by this going on with my father trying to start a scupper this deal that he got from the city to our offices within seven minutes on the underground. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I love that. I don't ever forget the fact he arrived so quickly to my head, to my aid and yeah. he into my father's office mm. it wasn't a chair there and he walked in carrying a chair mm-hmm. and I walked in and uh, these stockbrokers were actually a bit shocked that we just stormed in like that <laughs> um, but they still tried to persuade my father uh, to get to not do this deal but then my father's brother who I would never regard as a great uh, fan of mine came in and he backed me, and that was the crucial point. Yeah. We had a majority. So what I learned from that was that those stockbrokers were not interested in, in us. They were interested in doing a deal themselves. They, were, yeah. they knew that the deal that I was doing had nothing to do with them. So yeah. they wanted to try and scupper in and make some money on this deal. So when you get advice... These stockbrokers coming and giving my father's advice. It's again, you know, reiterated the point that people who give you advice don't mm. give you, in a lot of uh, situations, don't give you advice based on helping you. They do it on mm. helping them. Yeah. So you've got to be very wary of advice. Mm. Um, in business because it's a very important thing because we're always looking for advice we're always looking for uh help but often and this is the one thing i've learned more than anything else one thing is that you can get advice that is so damaging yeah that it puts you back it's like a game of snakes and ladders it puts you right the way back to the beginning you go down the snake but instead of going up the ladder Mm. Yeah. So yeah, that that's uh, that's absolutely right. You have to be careful because people are pushing their self interest, isn't it? What will serve them? Um, and today, I never, I never just accept everything that is to- that is told that I have to do mm. because of that. I will not. I will. I will question everything. Yeah. Wow. So I, I, I guess. You had a, a very high level of confidence in the deal at the, at the at that time, isn't it? Because essentially, had it gone the other way that it didn't put you into the success league, these stockbrokers would have come back to your father and say, "Look, this is this is what we said. This is what we are trying to avoid." Did you ever stop to think of that that it could go the other way? Well, I was in the business. I had been in the business for fifteen years, and I was absolutely certain. Yeah. Having Terry Jordan back as the buyer mm. uh, would turn our fortunes. I was absolutely certain of that because he had done very well leaving us. He was ta- he was like the old Ratners. I had seen Ratners being successful under him. Yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't a gamble. I was a hundred percent certain that this would work. He, he was the he was the key to. Um, you know, to, to, to succeed. I couldn't see anything going wrong with it. So yes. the fact that I had so much resistance made me feel even better about it because I knew I was right uh, and I knew I was going to prove those people wrong. 
Uh, and they did, in fact, those two stockbrokers came to my office uh, a few months later when I'd done the deal and it was all going well. They came in to apologize. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I accepted their apology and then I sacked them. <laughs> and I appointed my own stockbrokers because I, I felt that they uh, didn't give me any support whatsoever. <laughs> These are the people that I didn't want to listen to advice from. Yeah. Wow. So they got what they deserved in a way, isn't it? Hindsight it was a wonderful thing for them, in a way. Well, the thing is that stockbrokers are there to make a short term gain. Yeah. Look at the long picture so they are opportunistic aren't they you know exactly and maybe mm-hmm. if i was a stockbroker i'd be exactly the same yeah, I, yeah. I and uh, worry about my own uh, destiny <laughs> not anybody else's but you yeah. should be aware yeah uh of that yeah perfect so now you know you took uh ratners into this uh global empire you know making close to you know about billions of sales and profits in the millions and then uh, this happened. I'll just uh, play you a quick uh, uh, clip, actually. Uh, I think I know what you're going to play me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good afternoon, Mr. President, Your Royal Highness, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, Mr. President, for asking me to address such a prestigious audience. Also in Ratners, uh, we sell gifts as well as jewellery, things like a teapot for two quid, um, or we've got this imitation book that you lay on your coffee table. The pages don't actually open, uh, but uh, they're beautiful curled-up corners with imitation antique dust. I know it's, you might say, it's not in the uh, best possible taste, but we sold a quarter of a million of them last year. Um, we also do this uh, nice sherry decanter it's cut glass and it comes complete with six glasses on a silver plated tray that your butler could uh, bring you in and serve you drinks on and it's really only cost four pounds 95 pence people say to me how can you sell this for such a low price i say because it's total crap um, we even sell a pair of earrings but under a pound, gold earrings as well. And some people say, well, that's cheaper than a prawn sandwich from Marks and Spencers. But I have to say, the sandwich will probably last longer than the earrings. But no. So what, what goes through your mind when you listen to this again and again these days? <laughs> well, I do. People do play all the time. Um, It's something that I have to live with. It's just Mm. like if you've been in an accident and you've got a scar across your face, um, you you have to live with it. It's a regrettable, to say the least, part of my life because you saw how successful the business was before that Mm. and how unsuccessful it was after that. But I cannot spend the last 30 years uh, moaning and being bitter about it. So I have um, used it 
to as much as I mean, we wouldn't be doing this podcast probably if it wasn't for that, you know. Um, I would I wouldn't be doing speeches around yeah. Europe if it wasn't for that. Mm. I wouldn't have been in the health club business and sold my health club business for four million pounds if it wasn't for that. Yeah. So just like this COVID nineteen, there's always however terrible something is, yeah. there's always silver lining. There's always something. There's always something that um, is good about it. You know, that, that's how life is. It's not yeah. all bad. You know, during the war, the Second World War, there were good things, and yeah. I've had some of the good things in this, and there has been, you know, because uh, in some ways, um, it's helped me. You know, yeah. I know it's ridiculous, but it's I, I've tried to turn what is a huge negative into a positive yeah so I mean, if, if you if you take us through with a little bit leading to that speech and then what happens afterwards just for the benefit of some of our listeners who wouldn't uh, so much uh, be aware of uh, uh, the background uh, to this speech <clears throat> well after i made the speech um i had no idea that it would have the effect that it had Mm. Uh, how did I know that it was going to be on the front pages of the papers the next day? Mm. Nobody would have thought that. I'm not blaming anybody. It was a silly thing to say, but the reaction was ridiculously over the top to somebody who made a joke about mm. a sherry decanter. <laughs> Well, the press could see there were there was an opportunity here to be disingenuous and to make it a much bigger thing than it really was. Yeah, about a shared account and a pair of earrings, mm. uh, they turned it into, well, I said all my jewellery was crap, which of course I never did. In fact, in that same speech, I said all my jewellery is high quality, yeah. sold by highly trained staff, but we sell a shared account. So they turned it into something it wasn't. But that's what the press do. Yeah. Uh, you know, they try and create a story which isn't, isn't you know, wasn't really a story. Um, but, you know, I shouldn't have given them that ammunition in the first place. Yeah. Uh, but nobody could have imagined that it would be on the front page. Especially yeah. President de Klerk, uh, who was the other speaker, the President of South Africa, mm. um, at that same uh, conference talked about ending apartheid, which was, you know, quite <laughs> quite much more serious than uh, what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 the front pages were not about uh, ending racial segregation the next day. It was about a sherry decanter. So mm. that's the press for you. But yeah, so yeah. it had a very, uh, as you know. It had a horrendous effect on my business. Mm. There was no social media, but words soon got around, and sales, uh, initially in Ratners, started suffering, which we could live with to a certain degree because Ratners, believe it or not, was only a very small part by now of the business. Mm. We had a huge business in America. We had uh, H. Samuel, which was much, much bigger. I mean, H. Samuel was making 60 million, where Ratners was making about 6 million. So, just to give you a context of mm. how important H. Samuel. But then 
after about a month or two, H. Samuel, it became apparent to people, consumers, that I owned H. Samuel as well. Mm. And that was that was the uh, the, the really uh, worrying point of view. And then H. Samuel started losing sales at the top end with diamond rings and stuff like that. <clears throat> mm. And yeah, we we, we uh, didn't make the. You won't be surprised to hear that we didn't make the two hundred million pound that year. Mm. Uh, we made a loss, uh, mm. although in America we were unaffected. And just give you a difference between the press in America and the press in the UK. I was quite well known in America. I had a thousand shops. I was the second largest jewelers there. Uh, they didn't write it up at all. This this speech was of no interest to them. Not one line was written in America about this. Yeah, they didn't think it was a story of any importance. Mm. It's just the sun and the mirror who want to attack the wealthy at a time of recession. Mm. Blame it on them because everybody was struggling in 1991. Uh, picked on me. Uh, as the person, you know, as person who has contempt for their customers. And anybody that knows me knows that it was a joke about Sherry DeCanter, and I don't have contempt for customers, exactly the opposite. But yeah. that was that was the hurtful thing, which, by the way, is still said today, 30 years on. Mm. I mean, if you read Twitter, uh, I still get horrendous abuse every day on Twitter. Mm. Um, but... You know, I've learned to live with uh, yeah with it, and it's toughened me up. And mm. I can deal with things. I can deal mm. with things. I can mm. deal with this. I can deal with this pandemic better than most because I've been through tough times. Yeah, tough times, yeah. A lot of people that are moaning about it are people who've had it very easy. Yeah. I'm not generalising with everybody because a lot of people have generally really badly suffered and I feel very bad for them. But there's no question about the fact that a lot of rich people are moaning um, because they've never had setbacks before. Mm. So if if you can take us through what what then happened with the speech and then your bankers and then how you exited in the business, how how did that all unfold? (laughs) Well, obviously, if your sales start plummeting your profits disappear yeah and you can be unpopular with the press you can live with that yeah you can be unpopular with your shareholders you can live with that mm. but what you can't be unpopular with is your bank who you owe money to that is, that is the that is something that uh, you don't want to be in that situation. You can live with everything: bad press, mm. unpopularity. You cannot live with being unpopular with your bank manager. Yeah. And I was called into the bank because I'd broken my covenants, mm. and by then I'd owed them a billion pounds. Wow! And uh, they said to me that. Uh, you need to uh, talk to all the banks because it's not only Barclays that you owe this money to. It's what happens if you have a big debt is they farm it out into a consortium. Mm. I had to go to all the banks, persuade them to keep me going because they could pull the plug. They had the right 
Mm. The loan that anybody gives you, whether you're borrowing £10 or a billion pounds, is conditional on certain um, conditions that that I broke. And one of the conditions was that my profits couldn't go down below, I don't know, 30 million or 40 million or something like that. That would that would trigger a break of covenant. Mm. So I hired a chairman uh, to help me because I was the chairman and chief executive of the group. I hired a chairman with banking experience, mm-hmm. and uh, he ended up firing me. <laughs> so <laughs> again, I'd taken people's advice, like the mm-hmm. bank said, yes, it's a good idea to bring in uh, experience, an older man from the city, because I was still only about 43, bring in his been round the block in his 60s, he'd be CEO of Courtauld's or Coatesville, one of the big companies, Mm. Scottish guy, um, very dour, Mm. very serious, the opposite of me. Um, and we didn't get on. Well, we got on at first, but we didn't get on. And he, after 18 months, he fired me. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had basically uh, was in a bad place. Yeah, I'd lost, uh, well, you know, the day before I'd arrived at the Albert Hall to do the speech, I was on the crest of a wave. I arrived in my Bentley, chauffeur-driven Bentley, I'd made all that profit. I had houses all over the place. Mm. And then 18 months later, I had nothing. The shares had gone to 2p. I had debt. I'd lost my house. I'd take my kids out of school. I was penniless. Mm. That, that's... That's a massive fall from grace, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. My, my mother said to me, one day you can be cock of the walk and another day you can just be a feather duster. Mm. Um Life is like that. It yeah. can be taken away from you uh, very quickly. Or the reverse can happen. You can suddenly, you know, win the equivalent of the lottery or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And how, how, what did that do to your mental health and well-being? I started taking uh, antidepressants, mm. but that didn't help me get another job because it made me just very insular and withdrawn mm. and I didn't speak much. So uh, I really, uh, so the turning point really was when I started cycling, yeah, um, doing exercise, cycling 25 miles a day, which I still do to this day Wow! at the age of 71. Mm. And uh, that was made me realize the benefit of health and fitness. Mm. So I, I opened up a health club at that stage, seven years after I left Ratners, even yeah. though I didn't have any money. I had taken a site, put it in solicitor's hands, and tried to sell membership for a club that I hadn't bought. Mm-hmm. But I was successful in that, sold 800 memberships, and, and because of that, I... Uh, managed to raise the money. And two and a half years later, I sold it for four million pounds. So I was back on my feet. Wow, wow. Mm-hmm. I then invested half of that into online business, which started turning over 25 million back in jewelry. Mm. 
Uh, and I was then doing speeches about it. Mm. And life, although very different from how it was, had become good again. Yeah. Probably become even better. So when people ask me whether I regret saying what I said, <laughs> I, I do regret it. I do regret it. There's always this, I like to people to think, however terrible something happens to you, that it's not the end of the world. Yeah. I mean, is, is that a classic example of, uh, you know, someone who, if you have the, the business knowledge and the instincts about business, because that's uh, knowledge, isn't it, and experience, even if you get knocked down, does that necessarily mean if you bring those skills back, if you bring that experience back, you can always rise again? Uh, yeah, I think your most valuable, I think you're right. I think your most mm. valuable asset is not what yeah. you have in the bank. It's what yeah. you have in you. Mm. If you, you know, they say a fool and his money is soon parted. And the opposite is true. Even if you don't have any money, if you do have ability, even yeah. though you might lose it through bad luck or bad judgment, um, it's not the end of the world. In fact, a lot of the great business people today are ones that have gone bust or they've gone close to losing it. Yeah. The trouble is in this country, we write people off too quickly. Mm. We don't give them a second chance. Yeah, yeah. But that, that's just reflective of how competitive the world has become, isn't it? Yeah. And how fast-pacing and moving everything is and everyone competing for the top things, competing for money. So you have to be tough and to compete, to survive, essentially, isn't it? Yeah, but sometimes we move too fast. Mm. And by moving too fast, we make mistakes. Yeah. If you try and fix something, like, for instance, the other day my lawnmower broke. Mm. Now, in the olden days, I would sort of try and fix it very quickly. I wouldn't have patience with it. Mm. But now, lockdown, I, it was actually, I was quite pleased. It gave me something to do. Yeah. And I relaxed. I sat on a chair. I mm. looked at it very carefully. I turned it upside down. Mm -hmm. I did something which I could never believe that I could do or my wife would ever believe I could do, fix a lawnmower. It's yeah. just something that that's not my one of my skill set. Yeah. But we can all do it if we don't rush. Yeah. If we take our time, make ourselves comfortable, assess the situation, and then deal with it. We, the mistakes we make is when we're, as you say, rushing around. Yeah. I've learned that now. It's all very well me saying that. I, I'm old now, and you know when I was younger, I didn't. I, I would. Everything had to be done very quickly. Quickly, yeah. So what what got got you out of that rut after the seven years? Well, my wife said to me that unless I get a job, or because I had debts, credit hmm. card bills, and no job, and just lying in bed. She says, unless I do something, she would throw me out. <laughs> but sometimes you need somebody to uh, give you a kick up the backside. Yeah. yeah. You realise that you can't go on like this. Mm. You need to uh, to do something. Mm. Okay. You know, if you're in a room with a smell, 
you don't smell it till you go out and smell the fresh air because you, you're used to that smell. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So that that gave you that kick to sort of start again and start looking at reinventing yourself. Um, I remember uh, on, on one of the um, um, uh, master programs, the mastermind, you said, one quote that you, you gave, I think it was from someone, that life is difficult, but once you accept it is, it's no longer difficult. Yeah. I'm so glad that you remember that because yeah. that is the most important thing yeah. in life. Mm. Uh, people moan and complain, uh, yeah. but that is life. You, yeah. If you understand that, that life is full of setbacks, mm. it's not so bad. That is life. There's nothing unusual about we're having a pandemic or we're having this or we're losing our money or we become ill. Mm. That is life. You will not sail through life mm. unaffected. And by the way, the people that do are, are ones that lack certain empathy and sympathy. You know, to be part of the human race, you have to have suffered. Yeah. You're better for it. Mm. And, and and you're tougher for it. And if you're tougher, then when things go wrong, you don't suffer anywhere near as much. Mm. A woman who was uh, who I once saw in uh, New York, actually, was standing outside the hotel, and I knew that she was getting a flight back to London. Mm-hmm. And there were no taxis. Mm-hmm. And I said, you're going to miss your flight because you've been here in the pouring rain trying to get a taxi. And a lot of people would go mad because they're missing their flight back to London. They'd have a fit. She said, well, I'd been in Auschwitz. I'd been, uh, you know, in a concentration camp, and I was tortured. And quite frankly, after what I went through, missing my flight is nothing. It doesn't bother me at all. Wow. That's perspective, isn't it? It is. It is. And, you know, what I've been through is nothing like that. Nowhere near as bad as what she went through. Yeah. And and guess, why should I make a fuss about it? I mean, is, is some of the difficulty because we attach so much emotion to things happening as well and difficulties we're facing? Well, we're snowflakes. Mm. We've got it too good and uh, we make a whole fuss about nothing. Mm. We make a fuss. We, we, have a, we, we, we become very dramatic. Yeah. And we start screaming and shouting like children uh, when a little thing goes wrong. Mm. We can't handle it. And then, mm. you know, um, but life is difficult. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Like that. Mm. So, it, wasn't, it wasn't me that uh, came up with uh, that phrase. It was the first line of a book called The Road Less Travelled by Scott M. Peck. Yeah. Starts his book. Yeah. It's a book about life. Mm. And, the, the fir- and you know, that's the first line in the book. You can read that book and then put it down. Mm. You know, I, 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 I'm reading this book at the moment. Mm-hmm. That's the size of that book that I'm reading. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a massive book. It's a massive book. Yeah. What's the title? What, what is it called? What's the title? 
It's by Jonathan Meads, and it's called uh, Pedro and Ricky Come Again. It's not a novel or anything like that. It's yeah. a book about life. Yeah. All yeah. the different uh, areas of life. Uh, mm. And, and you know, because I do a lot of mentoring. Yeah. It helps me. So that, that there's, there's, a, there's, there's things on fashion, there's things on history, there's things on language, there's things on London, there's things on uh, politics. Um, mm. And, you know, I learn from other people. Yeah. But I've learned to listen to the right people. Yeah. A guy like who writes a book like that mm. and not some idiot who thinks, you know, on Twitter. couldn't <laughs> <laughs> write a page in a book, never mind about yeah. a book. Never mind a book this size. To write a book like this size, you have to be yeah. quite clever. Absolutely, absolutely. To, to, to do a tweet on Twitter, yeah. me off, <laughs> um, which I've got today and I get every day, that yeah. doesn't take any intelligence whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. But does, does that mean in, in hindsight, I mean, knowing what you know now and the experience that you've been through and the reading and the understanding that you do, if you had been in this, you know, period of, of, of phase of understanding and knowledge, do you think the way you handled and the way that uh, it took you so long to come out of the rut would have been shorter or you would have handled things better or in a different way? We have different, as we get older and we go through life, we change. Mm -hmm. And the young Gerald uh, was successful because he uh, had no fear and he took huge risks. Mm. And he was very focused on success, very determined. Mm. I'm not like that anymore. I don't take the risks that I did and uh, I'm not as ambitious as I was. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of faults when I was 30 in my 30s but it wasn't it didn't i was successful up until the speech i was successful uh because of those qualities which i don't have now so today i wouldn't be able to do what i did then i might be a better person i might be more uh sort of mindful and measured and uh philosophical yeah and and better educated, but I wouldn't be capable of building a business like I did because I wouldn't take the risks. I went to America when I was hugely successful. I was voted retailer of the year. Mm. But yet I went to America and I was told that if I failed, they my shareholders would turn on me with venom. But I didn't care. Yeah. The world of those days couldn't give a damn about anything. We just felt that he couldn't fail. But I wouldn't be like that today, so I wouldn't be as successful as today. So whilst you have some attributes now and some qualities then and sort of like that, um, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, uh, it's sometimes a lot – you have faults that yeah. can lead you to success in a way. Mm. Get my my meaning. 
I guess yeah. the, the success takes a, a different meaning as, as, as you are in different phases of your life, isn't it? Because even in your situation now, you know, the way that you, you are, you know, your calm and your wisdom is bringing you success in a different way, in a different it's meaning which, uh, you know, fits perfectly and is in line with your values now compared to then. So you've almost, just like you said, you've shifted. Yeah, I've shifted. And today I do mentoring. I help other people. I write books. I've just written a book called Reinvent Yourself this year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I would never sit down. The old Gerald would never sit down and write a book. It took me three yeah. and a half years to write a book. I would never do that. Yeah. I do speeches. I, I wouldn't do, um, in the old Gerald, just wanted everything to happen straight away. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that old Gerald was wrong or the, yeah. or the Gerald of today is wrong. We're just different. Different, yeah. Uh, we've re we, we, we have reinvented you, you change, and you should embrace uh, the change because yeah. what you don't really want is to be doing the same thing all your life and not changing. Yeah. And you see people are doing that. Yeah. They work doing exactly the same job all their life. They're just thinking about their pension. I've had a very varied life. I've had a lot of pain in it. I've had a lot of pleasure in it. Hmm. But I've experienced life. I've experienced the knocks and the, you know, and I've experienced the good times. And that is, that's what life is. That's what's pleasurable about life. Yeah, brilliant. Did, do you miss your old life of the young Gerard with all the um, glamour and the glitz and the cars and everything, everything else that came with it? Well, they were great days. In the end, their possessions, a lot of possessions like helicopters and boats and planes, they, I've learned they don't, don't make you happy, actually. Mm. Uh, it's, the, it's the people, it's the relationships that make you happy. And I miss that. I miss all the old colleagues, the camaraderie with the staff. Um, but, you know, I now lead a quieter life. Yeah. Um, I list. I read a lot of books, um, and you know it's a different life. Um, yeah. I can't yearn over the old life because um, that's gone. Yeah, um, and there's no point in hanging on to it. So I try and embrace the opportunities that I have today that are very different. Yeah. When I die, I would have felt that you know I've experienced a lot of different things rather yeah. than just one thing. Yeah, I enjoy the things I do today. I've I, listen. I had a terrible education, as I've explained to you. I came last. Yeah. I have now educated myself. I have learned lots of things. Yeah. I've read lots of books on like Dickens and and uh, mm -hmm. classics, yeah. Thomas Hardy and stuff like that. I've been and I've learned, you know, and I look at paintings and uh, listen to music, all those sort of things that I avoided doing when I was young, yeah. which I really enjoy now. Mm. No, that's uh, the great lessons of life, isn't it? The university of life. Well, you're uh, young. You've got all that ahead of you. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is good about life is that it's uncertain. We cannot predict. Who would believe that I would, what's happened to me, that I would have lost everything over a stupid speech and, yeah. then, and then made a lot of money back through mm -hmm. health and fitness and stuff like that and been talking to you? Yeah. It, 
what is exciting about life is it's unpredictable. Un- yeah. One thing I have learned is you can't predict the future. Yeah. It'll um, always be. It'll always surprise you. Just when you think you know it's gonna, this is gonna happen. Something ridiculous happens, and your life gets turned upside down. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Um, now, just uh, you, you probably listen. There's uh, in this uh, cautionary tales. You know, they did this uh, episode about you know where they compared Martin Luther King Jr. Yes, Tim Harford. Uh, yes, cautionary tales. Yeah, but it, I, I thought it was uh, an interesting twist there because not so much about uh, uh, you know it, it was almost comparing the preparedness in a speech as well as what happened between you uh, compared to Martin Luther King as being a question of judgment, not preparedness. Because for you, the speech, you prepared it, you were, you were really prepared, you asked people for feedback and everything was all set. Uh, just like uh, I think he puts it in his question, I tell that Martin Luther King had also prepared the speech and everything was set. But there was just a difference in the judgment in terms of some of the content that was in the speech. Yeah, what, he, changed, he, he changed his speech midway, didn't he? But I didn't realize that it was very interesting because somebody pointed yeah. out something. He was never going to say that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the, mm. Well, you know, it's unfortunate that the Sunday Times uh, this Sunday picked that podcast yeah. as their pick of the week when I had done six podcasts, like people with, like you and others, that have yeah. all been very positive, which they took the trouble of speaking to me and getting the facts from the horse's mouth. Tim Harford didn't do that. Yeah. And he got it wrong. Mm-hmm. He's got a lot of things wrong in that because yeah. he didn't bother to speak to me. But, yeah. of course, the Sunday Times, when they have to pick the choice out of the seven podcasts, the mm-hmm. six are hugely positive about yeah. my recovery, how I bounce back, Absolutely. my learned lessons. no. They would always pick, because the press never changed, they picked the one that was negative mm-hmm. and rubbish about me having contempt for customers and uh, making fun of people and stuff like that, which is so not true. Yeah. But that, that's the press's agenda. They don't want to hear about Gerald Ratner uh, learning a lesson, coming back yeah. successfully. That's not interested. What they're interested in is somebody losing everything and yeah. suffering. This is very sad. Mm, it is. And essentially, that's what sells the papers, isn't it? Again, I remember, uh, you know, last time in the mastermind group where you talked about two stories that appeared in the newspaper about, so, uh, you know, one uh, is it a stockbroker losing something and committing suicide, and then there's another story. Mm. But then the one that got in the, the biggest read and headline was yeah. the sad one, you know. So yeah. that's the nature of. Uh, the press, isn't it? Yeah. It's the nature of the press, but it's more the nature of us because mm-hmm. the press are only writing those stories because they know that that sells newspapers. Newspaper, we would yeah. rather hear about uh, negativity than positivity. Yeah. We yeah. feel that if we're suffering, we're doing badly, it's mm-hmm. all right if somebody else suffers. That's not that makes you feel better. Yeah. Which is rubbish. What what difference does it make that somebody else is doing badly? That doesn't help you. Yeah. But, you know, so somebody once said, if you want to understand what a man thinks about um, himself, listen to about what he says about other people. 
Um, when he insults people the whole time mm-hmm. uh, and he's really unpleasant, he's really talking about himself, so, his own life. Yeah. That's, uh, that's and then you get somebody who's really positive and he's very pleased that somebody's earning a big salary and they're doing well and expanding. Mm. I think it's great. They're talking about themselves. Yeah. They're thinking, well, yeah, I can relate to that. I'm doing really well. So yeah. when you hear people criticise people, it's because they are uh, miserable people themselves. Mm. Yeah, that, that that's great. That's great. I mean, your, your story is such an inspirational story, and uh, which which is why I mean, your book, the the rise and fall and rise again, you know, reinventing self. Is yeah. something that can inspire a lot of people because just like you say, business and life is difficult. And yeah. if you can relate and learn from experience of people who have experienced it in the hardest of ways and see how they've reinvented it themselves and come back and do something even you know better, I think that is a great way to get inspiration from. So that's why, well, you know. Thank you very much for saying that, Alex. But, you know, I go around doing these speeches all over Europe to hotels in Manchester, Liverpool, London, Leeds. And Mm. everywhere I go, they listen to me and I get nothing but Mm. kindness, Mm. compliments. Yeah. Really lovely people. Not once have I had any hostility. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're the people that have met me. And yeah. listen to my story. But you, the people that don't, never met me know nothing about it. They're yeah. the ones that have the most to say. Yeah. People who are the most ignorant about me mm. are the experts. And they're, you know, the, the, the press, the, the, never bother to speak to me. They just have to write stuff that is a stereotype about me, which is just rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> um, I made a mistake. I'll be the first one to admit that. But, you know, we've all made mistakes. Yeah. Say that, you know, that you should be uh, criticised for the rest of your life because you've made a silly mistake. careless moment of bad judgment. Mm. But, you know, all these people that don't know me, I get nothing but abuse. People who do have met me, I get nothing but uh, kindness and compliments. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in some circles they say there's no such thing as a mistake, just lessons, isn't it? I exactly. Know. And yeah. I have certainly learned. Yeah. Absolutely. Once you've made that mistake, you'll never make it again. <laughs> Absolutely. You've, you've learned. But, uh, you know, for people in business and everywhere, the biggest uh, piece they can take to leverage themselves is actually to learn from other people's mistakes so they never get to make them themselves. It's a lot better if you can learn from other people's mistakes yeah. rather than your own and then don't make them. Absolutely. What, what, what would you say uh, is the best piece of advice that you've ever received from anyone? Um. <laughs> Now, there's probably many pieces of advice you've received, imagine. I think, you know, I knew a guy called Charles Sarchi, who's a very famous mm-hmm. actor. Yeah. yeah. And it was a bit of an arrogant thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. It won't do me any favours. <laughs> he said, 
why do you want to be like 99.9 percent .9 of the population why don't you try and become famous and different <laughs> and yeah. you don't want to be like everybody else mm -hmm. um so just just so be you, you. i realized you know I, it made me more ambitious yeah i mean i don't know whether it's good advice or bad advice yeah um mm -hmm. Maybe it's good to have a nice house in the suburbs with a nice car and a, a mortgage and two children and mm. be like everybody else. I don't know. Mm. Uh, at that time, that resonated with me. Yeah. <laughs> I could do whatever I wanted to do, go my own way, achieve whatever I wanted to achieve. Yeah. Correct. So, I mean, for people who are embarking on business now or just looking, you know, personal development to better themselves, what would be your what sort of pieces of advice that you would advise people embarking in business and personal development from your experience? Well, what I would say is that don't give up, that you will be, uh, you'll have setbacks. It takes a while. But keep on going. Yeah. Um, it's going to get, you know, the more difficult it is to get there, the more difficult the journey is, the more pleasurable it is to reach the destination. Mm. It's too easy. It's uh, There's not a great pleasure. So don't give up. Um, don't expect it to be easy. Um, be an expert at your particular field, whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. because a lot of people can't be bothered with boring detail yeah. part of business. But business is about detail. It's about yeah. doing the little things right. Um, and it won't happen overnight. You're not going to be an overnight success. Mm -hmm. One day you'll wake up and you will have a really good business if you are an expert in your field. Because there's too many people that, what I call a jack of all trades. They don't really bother to be an expert in anything. But I think if you really do um, become good at one particular thing, you only need to be really brilliant at one thing. Terry Jordan was only brilliant at buying jewelry. He wasn't actually any good at anything else. Yeah. Um, you only need to be good at one thing. But if you really get good at that, if you're the expert, if you're the world champion at that particular thing, you're the world champion. You only need to be a world champion at one thing. You don't need to be at everything. Yeah. You could be the world champion at choosing the right cloth that goes into clothing. Mm. You could be the world champion at getting people's nails looking good or their hair looking good. Yeah, yeah. You know? As long as you're really good at one thing, rather than trying to be, you know, a jack of all trades. Exactly. So mm. that's my, my view. It's not everybody's. Yeah. No, but that's a, a golden piece of nugget uh, out there, Jared. Thanks for that. Now, uh, your book. Take us through your book and what you have going on now and uh, what's happening in the future. Because you've got the book, Reinvent Yourself. Yes. Um, yeah, just um, talk, talk us through uh, some of your, uh, what you're doing now and your books. <laughs> well, it's a book on, uh, because of the pandemic, although I was writing it before, but I felt 
it's much more relevant. I've written it with Rob Moore. Mm -hmm. uh, do you know Rob Moore? Yes, absolutely. He's uh, one of my mentors. Uh, he's been on the podcast as well. He did my first ever podcast. We talked about leverage and everything. So yeah, he's, a for, man. He's, made, he's made a fortune for lots of people. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. The wonderful thing to do, but mm -hmm. it's good enough to make a fortune for yourself, but it's a wonderful thing to help other people do that yes. as well. What he's done. Yeah. I don't claim to have done that at all. Mm. Uh, but if I can do a bit of what he's done, I think that'd be fantastic. Mm. But we wrote this book together, mm. and uh, we just feel that it's completely relevant today mm -hmm. because when we come out of the pandemic, things are never going to be the same again. Yeah. And there'll be a lot of people that won't be able to go back to what they're doing, and this book will help them yeah. to do something different. And it gives advice on. Uh, the fact that if you are unhappy in your job, then don't be upset that you have to do something else. A lot of people are moaning that they've lost their job, but they never liked their job in the first place. Mm. So life is too short. Reinvent yourself. Yeah. Don't do a job that you're not happy in, because if you're not happy, you won't be any good at it. The one thing is for sure the only people that are good at their job are the people that love their job yeah yeah so that i love speaking i love doing my speeches more than mm. i've ever loved anything be before and that's why i'm very upset that i can't do it at the moment yeah uh although thank you for doing this podcast and at least you know best uh, i can do things on zoom but it's not the same as going to hotels and meeting people and uh, oh yeah mm. so uh, the book is all about don't be afraid. Life is full of risk. Yeah. Business is risk. We're not in the public sector. We're not doctors and nurses or policemen, or, um, which are wonderful people, but they don't have to take the risk that you do in the private sector. And unless you're prepared to take a risk, move jobs, start mm -hmm. a new business. Yeah break with the past, um, you will get, reinvent yourself, you will go backwards in life. Yeah. You don't sit back. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's brilliant. And uh, I mean, just uh, something like that coming from you, you know, someone who have actually lived the talk, you've reinvented yourself. So what's, uh, what's the vision for you? Like, uh, where do you, see yourself like five years ten years what is it that you would like to achieve now in life well you see a lot of people have written books or or make speeches have not actually experienced it themselves mm. i've when i took over at ratner's i had worked in the shop behind the counter so i could talk to somebody yeah in the way that because they knew that i had worked in the shop yeah People who have not worked in the shop and start telling people how to sell stuff don't carry as much weight. Yeah. It's important that you do that. Mm. How I see myself in the next 10 years? Mm. Uh, well, I'd probably be dead. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> don't be so pessimistic, Jeff. 
message of our positivity and uh, you know, inspire people. <laughs> Being, I'm really inspired, uh, positive and uh, inspiring people say that. But I, uh, I, it's difficult because you know you you're not as ambitious when you reach the age that I'm doing, yeah. um, but I do want to keep working. Hmm. in the next 10 years. My mother once said to me that you have to leave your house in the morning and to go to a place of work and come back in the evening. And I'm not doing that at the moment. None of us are doing it, or very few. And I think she's right. I think if, if you sit around the whole time, apart from the fact I'll annoy my wife, <laughs> um, I think it's unhealthy. I think the times when you're at your happiest is when you're working the hardest. It's annoying. We'd all like to sit at home and eat chocolates, yeah. watch television, but that actually doesn't make you happy. Yeah. What makes you happy is working, putting in an effort, going to work. Uh, so I want to keep working till I'm till I drop dead. Mm. Uh, I would travel to India because I'm trying to set up a website there. Yeah. Um, I. When I went to do mentoring in the Cayman Islands, one of the young girls said to me, uh, it's your day off tomorrow, we can lie on the beach, hmm. Sunday. And I said, well, I'm not, I'm actually flying to America tomorrow, to Atlanta, uh, Fort Dallas, hmm. uh, Fort Worth in Dallas to make a speech. And then I'm flying back in the middle of the night and carrying on the mentoring on the month. That's what I'm doing on my day off. <laughs> yeah. I keep myself busy, and by keeping myself busy, I keep myself young. Yeah. I want to keep up my exercise mm -hmm. and still cycle past young people in their 30s, overtake them. I do have a very fast bike, but I'm still mm -hmm. very fit for my age. Yeah. I do a lot of walking, which is something new for me. I love it. It's so exercise. But you've got to exercise your brain as well as your body. That's the body, yeah. You can't let that go to pop. It'll go the same way as your body. It'll become fat and lazy. Hmm. But I, I guess I guess that's uh, that's the beauty of uh, sort of combining your passion and profession. So there's that uh, blur between your vocation and your vocation. So like you say, you're enjoying what you're doing. In some uh, instances, it's earning you money, but you love it. But also, it's that contribution to others because, you know, I can tell you, Gerard, just by appearing on this uh, podcast, for example, and the mentorship that you do, it's making that uh, contribution to people and others in a way that even if you don't get to see it, you don't get to feel it, but you're impacting the world out there just by sharing your story, sharing your experience, sharing how, you know, from you, you rise again from falling. And that, you know, resonates with a lot of people who are also experiencing difficulties and problems because they can see you and say, if Gerard, you know, uh, like, like you say, you appear on top lists of mistakes or whatever, but still looking at you and hearing your story, you're still positive and you take that as experience and you can still inspire people and that is a, a very positive thing and a big contribution to others that you you're doing as well so you know big credit to you and such an inspiration so 
It's um, <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure having having you on on the podcast today. Yeah. Alex, that's such kind words, and somebody who receives a lot of criticism. It's lovely to hear compliments from time to time. So mm. I very much appreciate that, and thank you very much for asking me mm-hmm. on your podcast. Yeah, it's it's been it's been a pleasure, and uh, you know, as always, we'll be following up on your story. And uh, if it's okay with you, maybe at some point, I would like to bring some of my group. Maybe we can do maybe just a few of them, like like a, a Q and A session. They can ask you a few things of uh, advice and pieces of golden nuggets they want to know and understand from business and how they can push themselves and empower themselves and just increase their knowledge as well on business and i think just like you say that will be a great contribution that you're doing to people as well so anytime uh, that's yeah. why that's what i do and that's why i'm uh, here to help people uh, um, so yeah i'd be delighted all right brilliant so yeah it's been an absolute pleasure gerard thank you very much and uh, i'm sure you know enjoy the rest of your day and we'll be in the all right thanks thank you, Alex. Cheers. Bye. 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 Bye.